1: A warning before we get started, in today's episode, we're going to be discussing themes of child sexual abuse and trauma, which may be distressing for some listeners, so please take care. If this raises any issues for you, remember you can call the Blue Knot Foundation on 1300 657 380.
2: They offer support for anyone affected by complex trauma. Sometimes, you know, I think the most courageous thing you can do is literally just keep getting up every day and putting one foot in front of the other. And I think, you know, that applies to survivors of all sorts of things, you know, bushfires and natural disasters and, and then things like childhood sexual abuse as well. Hi, I'm Jane Lee. I'm a reporter and
1: audio producer at Guardian Australia. And this is Book It In, a show about the big ideas behind great books. I was really excited to interview today's guest, Jennifer Downe. Jennifer won this year's prestigious Miles Franklin Award for her novel Bodies of Light, which is an extraordinarily moving work of Australian literary fiction. It's a confronting and compelling story about a woman named Maggie who goes into state care as a young child. We follow Maggie over many years as she tries to find love while also dealing with the trauma of child sexual abuse. We first meet Maggie in her 40s when she receives an unexpected Facebook message from someone in her past, and we also learn that she's been accused of killing a child. Now, the book lays bare a number of problems in the systems we rely on to care for Australia's most vulnerable children, who are sometimes called care leavers. These problems are long-standing and pervasive, and they were aired on the national stage in recent years during the Royal Commission into Institutional Responses to Child Sexual Abuse. Jennifer has said many times that Maggie's story isn't hers, but she does tell it with real empathy, backed by deep research into Care Leaver's experiences. So I wanted to ask her about how she wrestles with the ethical and moral dilemmas that are inherent in talking about trauma and abuse which doesn't belong to you. Thank you so much for being here today, Jennifer. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. So, you came to Bodies of Light with a pretty unique perspective on children in residential and out of home care because you grew up hearing about these experiences from your parents, who I know were both
2: welfare workers. Tell me a little bit about your parents. My dad is actually a school teacher, but he worked in a school as the welfare worker. And it was a school with a reasonably high number of kids who dealt with issues like rough housing or homelessness, substance abuse, either themselves or in their families, um, quite a lot of, you know, poverty and often quite unstable living circumstances for these young people. Um, and my mum was uh, a protective worker for many years and worked in sort of the southeastern suburbs where, where we lived um, when I was a kid. So they both worked with really different demographics. Mum worked with very young children, so um, unborn notifications, as they call them, through to two years old. And dad worked with um, kids right at the other end of the system who were 17 and 18 years old. So it was kind of year 11 and 12 high school. And so, yeah, I think that was just very much a fabric of um, our our day-to-day conversation was discussions about people whose lives were very different to mine, you know, in the sense that they often lacked stability and these children were often being bounced around from place to place or, or had very little certainty or surety about what would what would happen the next day let alone you know the next week and beyond. Mm.
1: And it's interesting that your parents worked on it sounds like both ends of the spectrum in terms of the the age range that we're dealing with so you would have heard stories from very young about very young children and stories from children who are about to exit care so that whole spectrum of that experience.
2: Yeah so um we talk about the, the cycles of abuse and trauma from generation to generation, but they both kind of witnessed firsthand um, what it meant for parents' circumstances to be visited on on their child or children later on.
0: Mm,
1: that's, that's very difficult, I imagine. Um, do you remember how old you were when you started hearing
2: about their work and also understanding what it was that they did? Honestly, I don't remember. It was just always we were one of those families that had dinner together every night. and it wasn't so much that they would kind of sit down and talk about specific cases. You know, it wasn't, it, it, they weren't... Breaching uh, confidentiality no. all over the place. <laughs> they weren't totally without filter or without, you know, without um, moral scruples or whatever. But it was very much just a, um, I, I can't remember not knowing actually that, that yeah, there were people who, whose lives were very different to mine. And, you know, I wouldn't say either of my parents are sort of political animals, but I think if you work in that kind of area, you, you tend to have a... a a little bit of a consciousness about certain things. And so, um, like I've said before, one of my very earliest memories is of my mum and my her dad, my grandfather, absolutely shit canning Jeff Kennett, because he just this is maybe 94 and he'd he'd kind of come in and just um strip the absolute guts out of a lot of social services, hospitals, healthcare as well, but a lot of a lot of welfare services. And so I think, you know, more than perhaps specific stories or you know, it wasn't like we were were pouring over case files together or anything, but it was more just that, you know, in the course of these day-to-day conversations. And like, I was very interested in their work as a kid I, I was one of those kids who always wanted to be a grown-up and yeah and for better or worse they kind of talked to me like I was a grown-up and so in the course of conversations about you know things like policy and I don't know systemic frameworks and of course we weren't using that language because I was I was a child but <laughs> now, Jennifer um, need you- <laughs> to tell, let you know about the systemic framework <laughs> no it was nothing like that it, it was just um, I hate I hate using this word like this but it was a very organic um it was very much just a part of the fabric of of the day-to-day
0: mm.
1: And how do you think this these kinds of conversations around the dinner table really informed the way you understood your own childhood as you were growing up and, your you know, your family, which
2: was, you know, much more stable um, than, than some of the children that you were hearing about? You know, it gave me a huge appreciation. Not that I think I, you know, my family is super, super close and I don't think I ever sort of took it for granted that no. I had this, um, you know, this profound sense of safety. But, um, you know, by the same token, there were times when I was growing up when, like for various reasons money was very stressful and tight and there were times when um, due to reasons I, I sort of I, I won't go into now but there were times when I um, stayed with, you know, my grandparents who I, again was super, super lucky to have them and there were times when, um, you know, things were not necessarily... Predictable or stable at home, like it wasn't. It wasn't necessarily the the white picket fence, you know what I mean. But by the same token, I never had any doubt that I was very loved, and I never had any doubt that you know, kind of, no matter whether I was staying at home or I was um, staying with my my nan or my pa, I never had any doubt that I would be looked after and, mm. and cared for. And so, I think the older I got, the more I appreciated that that is is certainly a kind of um, a psychological security that. Most of us do take for granted. Mm. This is
1: a big question, but how would you summarise your perspective on residential care when you began
2: writing Bodies of Light? I think I've known for for many years, for as long as I was aware, you know, that that's what my parents did, that it's a deeply flawed system. And like in any uh, office or job, there are good workers and there are bad workers. Mm. There are good parents and bad parents. There are parents who are trying to do their best but need a little bit of help to, to get there. And so I didn't sort of want to paint a picture of practitioners per se. And this isn't just, you know, this isn't about my parents. It's like I have most of my friends work in community services or, you know, community legal centres and places like that. And for as long as I can remember being cognisant of these jobs, people have said the same thing, which is often we are doing our best in a really, really imperfect and underfunded system. Mm. That doesn't absolve workers or cops or practitioners of making bad choices. And, you know, like I I, I have an inherent distrust of the police, for instance. I, I don't, uh, I'm an abolitionist. By the same token, I think that, I don't know, it's something where you need to tread carefully and, and be a little bit careful to show nuance. And I suppose that's what I was attempting to do with some of those characters because, mm-hmm. you know, it's um, aside from it being kind of a realist point of view, right, like wanting to write something that reflects society accurately. I mean,
1: I definitely think you have achieved a very nuanced book and, and also something that is even harder to do. It, it, I feel like your book really makes very challenging subjects like vulnerable children in care, child sexual abuse, impossible to turn away from. And, and of course, its protagonist, Maggie, is so critical to achieving that. How did this character come to you as an author? And, and how did you get, go about getting to
2: know her? I don't know. I think the the way you come to know any character is just like through writing the the book and putting them in different situations and having them respond. And I I kind of cringe when authors talk about characters like they're real people. But I think this was the first time that I'd spent so much time with the character. And I don't even mean time writing, but the, the novel takes place over a time span of like 50 years, I think. And so that's a really long time. Like rather than just having a glimpse of a character's life during a, a one- or two-year period, or if you're writing a short story, it might be a matter of days or hours, I really sort of had to excavate her, her past experience because, you know, you can't write a convincing portrait of somebody across half a, half a century if you don't really know them. I mean, so, mu- so much about
1: Maggie is unremarkable in a way. I mean, she lives in the suburbs for most of her life, she works in places like pubs and video stores. And I guess that's because she spends much of her life trying not to be noticed. What do you think it is about Maggie as a person that grips you as an author, but also your readers?
2: People often talk about resilience and I think that's an appropriate word in many ways. And then some, there's something in me and I haven't worked it out properly, but there's something in me that bristles against that a little bit as well, because in the same way as like, occasionally people will talk about um redemption in, in the context of this book and for me there is no redemption and I don't think that's a bad thing from the beginning I really have resisted the idea and not even in my work I mean generally speaking I I really resist the idea that survivorship involves you know being courageous or doing something incredible or making your story palatable to other people or you know and if, if you can survive something awful and then go into activism that's incredible and I you know I I'm not uh casting aspersions on anybody but I I kind of take issue with that with the idea that that's kind of the only or or the, the best way to be a survivor of any of any trauma. And um sometimes you know I think the most courageous thing you can do is literally just keep getting up every day and putting one foot in front of the other. And I think you know that applies to survivors of all sorts of things, you know, bushfires and natural disasters and and then things like childhood sexual abuse as well. So I wanted I wanted to write this character who, she really does just keep surviving, and she does some extraordinary things. She also makes some terrible decisions. She, you know, has has kind of these manifest foibles that that she, you know, sometimes she doesn't learn from her mistakes, and she perpetrates the same things over and over again, and she harms other people as well as herself. But I think if there is redemption to be found in this story it's it's just her kind of doggedness and willingness to you know she's very she's a very bloody minded character she just does what she needs to survive and sometimes as i said those choices you know that she makes are quite drastic or might not be easily understood by by the reader you know
1: a lot of the praise that you've received for this book are in the extraordinary details that you use to describe Maggie's story and i was particularly impressed by how you worked out when to let the reader look and then look and look away um you know where to draw the line between being respectful to this character and people who've had stories like hers and and what that represents so for example there's um a part of the book quite early on where you talk about Maggie being just 4 years old and being sexually abused and you refer to the number of bruises on her thigh and the pain that she felt afterwards going to the bathroom and I just, I wonder if you can talk me through whether there's a process that you go through to kind of try and figure out
2: what to leave in and what to leave out. Mm. Um, You know, I think it's a really good question. I don't think about these as sort of problems to be worked out when I'm writing, but what I was conscious of the whole time was that it has to be readable, right? It can't be, it can't feel gratuitous and it also can't be so unrelentingly awful or graphic or whatever else that the reader puts the book down. Exactly. Yeah. That was certainly something I, I kept in mind. I also don't necessarily think that being particularly graphic always serves a purpose. Sometimes it, it can, um, and I don't want to sound like oddly prudish or whatever, but I think sometimes there's a lot of power in being restrained and in letting the, the reader in this instance fill in the gaps and, and kind of bring their own imagining to the table. Mm. I think, I mean, I really like books like that because it makes me feel like the author trusts me as the reader to kind of do some of the legwork. Sure. Um and and kind of trust my intelligence in some way. And I, I think I operate generally as a writer from that perspective. And then, you know, when when we're talking about the more sensitive stuff like like sexual abuse, you definitely want to make sure the reader doesn't, doesn't, you know, throw the book away. But also it's about how a child or you know, a, a character of that age might um, experience those things and if you don't necessarily have the vocabulary for some of this stuff, how, how do you express it? And because this is kind of a first-person narrative and we follow Maggie from a really young age through to middle age, the way that she, you know, she's remembering these things, of course, as an adult, but mm. I wanted the way that she kind of described them to to feel like it matched her age and, and developmental capacities um, along the way.
1: I mean, in the book we learn about many of the systemic failures in out-of-home care, specifically in the 80s and the 90s when the book is set, through Maggie's eyes. And and as you said, she suffers sexual abuse but also physical and emotional as she moves between different foster homes throughout her childhood how would you say the system failed Maggie
2: and children like her back then? Um, well, firstly, I think it's really important to note that, like, this is a historical novel in the sense that you know, as you say, a lot of it's set in the seventies, eighties, and nineties. But many of the problems that are sort of touched upon in the book are still occurring today, and you know, in fact, in many cases, things aren't getting better. Like. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children, for instance, are increasingly overrepresented in in the system. That that's um, that's a problem that is you know rapidly becoming worse. And so there are these things that we might like to think of as sort of historical, belonging to another time, and we might like to think that we've learned and and kind of we're doing better now. But um, that's we're not. And there's um, you know there are, there are reports um, as recently as as 2015 um, the Commissioner for Children and Young People in Victoria, there was a um, report that um, was tabled in Parliament called As a Good Parent Would. And, you know, as recently as then, so less than 10 years ago, workers who visited resi units were finding things like security cameras, CCTV units in, in children's bedrooms and completely unsafe living conditions and I mean inhospitable living conditions at best and I'm talking about things like you know drug paraphernalia and you know no no bed sheets on on mattresses but then there are also deeply distressing things like the CCTV that I mentioned or the fact that you know things like food and toys and sanitary supplies are often kept under lock and key or light switches are being used for behavior management you know mm. controlled by a central switch and like these are some of the most vulnerable people in our society and that's how we're raising them mm. and so that was a roundabout way of saying you know the, the system fails children like Maggie today in ways that continue to I always whenever I talk about this I can feel myself my voice is getting shaky because I get so angry about it the, the fact that you know it's it's very much not historic it's ongoing and we just don't seem willing to to kind of meet it or, or to even start to problem solve. But I guess in Maggie's specific instance, you know, she's failed by a system that is um, over-reliant on police and quite punitive when it comes to what is considered bad parenting and then makes little attempt to retain what we would consider, you know, kinship structures and things like that. Some of that stuff has changed. You know, there are there are kind of trends, for want of a better word, in, in um, out-of-home care. So, foster care is, you know, group homes definitely still exist, but foster care is, um, and and kinship care uh, are becoming more common. Mm. I was also
1: sort of struck by the inability to detect child abuse at multiple foster homes throughout Mm -hmm. this story. Maggie travels to many places in the book to try to escape her past. It struck me that no matter where she went, she always was looking to be loved wherever she could. And that for me, is what was most compelling about this book. Um, The part of the book that moved me the most, if you just allow me, um, was this scene where Maggie returns to Judith's home, someone Mm -hmm. who took care of her for some time, and she's thinking about the time that they spent together in, in the home that she's in. She's standing in the house and you write, "'I stood there in the dark, running my fingertips "'over the key in my pocket.'" The longer I waited, the more repellent the house became like a mausoleum. I thought about the bits of me left in there, the skin cells and hairs and fingerprints, the dumb things that belonged to me, the box of Fruit Loops, the strawberry-scented conditioner, the box of pads in the cupboard over the toilet. All of it could be replaced, but it was stuff she'd bought for me. And I think the thing that moves me so much is that they're basic essentials, you know, cereal, a box of pads, it really moved me how grateful she was for them, because they were signs of love. And I just wondered how you imagined how abuse and trauma changes
2: how people see love. I mean, the short answer is there's no one-size fits-all response to any any abuse, you know, so I wanted to be really careful not to sort of flatten um, flatten people's experiences. But I think something I noticed a lot in you know particularly American media, in, you know, film and literature is often sex abuse survivors and childhood sex abuse survivors are portrayed as, there are are kind of these tropes that we see played out and often they're tropes because, you know, these responses do occur a lot. Mm. It's that, you know, that idea that sometimes there's there's a kernel of truth in stereotypes, right? Sure. But often we see them played out in the same way, which is, you know, either somebody has massive intimacy issues and, and is completely unwilling to... Um, form any sort of new attachments, and again, that is one very valid and very possible response. Or two, that people have this you know very insecure kind of attachment style as as adults, and then often I find in like films and things that's kind of uh, translated as like promiscuity or you know like. This and I, I'm, so I'm some easy connection. Yeah, yeah, like, oh, she had daddy issues and now, you know, she looks for daddy in every you know, and, and yeah. again, that stuff does happen, but I just was conscious that I was like I didn't want to write a character who had I don't know, who um I wanted to resist some of those tropes and those sort of um I don't want to say easy responses, because they're not at all, but those you know, things that we kind of see played out again and again. And to look at the ways in which you know, we do continue to seek connection and we don't always do a good job of it, particularly if you don't, if you haven't grown up with kind of a, a solid model of attachment and if you have been bounced around and if you have experienced, you know, abuse of any kind or trauma, mm. you don't necessarily have the tools or or the kind of um, knowledge to form perfect relationships. I mean, none of us do, right? But, um, but you might struggle a lot more, but I, I kind of reject the idea that um, you know, just because you've suffered these things that that casts a pall on your entire ability to form attachments period. I just I, it seemed very very reductive to me, I think mm. Mm. so keeping
1: keeping the same
2: human instincts there, but changing them based on that very specific experience for her. yeah, and I just wanted to be careful not to sort of flatten that experience because people are, are capable of enormous sort of. A healing for you know that's that's sort of a, a bit of a wooey wooey term to throw around but they are capable of huge healing and an and enormous love irrespective of, of what has sort of come before and I wanted to reflect that. Mm.
1: I mean no matter how many times she moves around to change her or changes her identity there do seem to be parts of Maggie that remain with her right to
2: the end of the book where we leave her. What would you say they are? I think that healing doesn't necessarily mean that, um, you know, you're, you forget or or are kind of completely rinsed of the trauma that you've experienced earlier. And so I think, like, you know, Maggie does have difficulty with intimacy. She wants it, but she finds it very, very difficult to kind of explain her whole self to people. And there is, I think, an element of self-protectiveness in that. There's an episode later in the book where... She has been married to this bloke for 10 years and they've been separated for a couple of years after that but remained in touch. They've kind of known one another for for 10 or 15 years and then she discloses um, not just childhood sexual abuse but the fact that she grew up in residential care. Mm. And that's kind of, you know, it, it takes her that long to trust somebody else with that information, to know that it won't be wielded against her, to feel that she can use that in a way to explain a little bit more of herself. And Mm. so I think she knows that there are parts of her that are sort of unreadable or unexplainable to other people and every relationship she has, romantic or otherwise, is kind of a a negotiation of that in some way. Mm. But I do also think, you know, I talked earlier about her sort of doggedness or bloody-mindedness. And I think that's something she has. I think that's a fairly sustained um, trait the whole way through the book. It's almost like unlocking a secret that will explain so much about who
1: she is, right? And I think a big question of this book is whether anyone can ever truly reinvent themselves given we've got these things about us that stay the same. Um, Of course there's the practical nature of this question, right? Like can you change your name? But there's also an emotional aspect, you know, whether you can ever truly become someone new And I think that's something that you were trying to
2: explore with this book. So so what do you think is the answer? Memories or experiences that are kind of impressed so deeply upon us, we can't erase those. And I think we do carry that stuff with us. And that doesn't mean we can't change or, you know, have capacity for change in the future. But I think a lot of the book is sort of Maggie trying to outrun her past and then realising or coming to terms with the fact that she can't do that that was certainly the conclusion that I came to: is that the kind of practical aspects of erasing yourself are much, much easier than what it takes to kind of reconstitute a new sense of self mm. from that psychological or or psychosocial perspective. That you know, it's very it's very complicated because everything from patterns of speech to um, the kind of narratives that we have for ourselves of where we grew up or, or where we were when X event happened mm. um, to those kind of core memories that inform our responses to things and the way that we engage with other people and the way we move throughout the world, the way we parent our children. Um, I think those things are really hard to, to unstitch and then change.
0: Finding your perfect home was hard.
1: We've spoken a little bit about some of the research that you, the, the things that you read in order to write this book. So, care leaver testimonies, uh, children's commissioner reports. There are also academic articles, court judgments, um, police interview transcripts. All of all of these things that you use to construct this story that is, you know, to be authentic to the true experience of care leavers. But of course, you know, there's a there's sort of a, a leap to be had between the documentary research and then this story of how Maggie's able to form relationships and trust and everything, as we've said. So did you set yourself any rules or how did you go about making that leap in a way that was um, true to those experiences without perhaps copying
2: from the more exploiting them in any way? Early on in the piece, I thought, I'm going to interview some care leavers about their experiences And then I almost reflexively, like within minutes of having that, that, you know, light bulb moment, I was like, no, I can't do that because of the potential to, to re-traumatize people. Sure. So what I eventually ended up doing was speaking with people who kind of came to me or came to me through other people. So, you know, for instance, the father of a friend who found out about, you know, she, she told him that I was working on this, on this project and he was really keen to have a chat.
1: And he was a care leaver. Yes, sorry, right. sorry. Yes, yeah. he was a
2: care leaver. And so, the, yeah, there were instances like that where people were really willing to share their stories, and I, you know, certainly wanted to, like, what, a, what a gift to kind of be trusted with people's memories and experiences like that. But I kind of, I guess, in terms of rules, my rule was just that I wasn't, you know, that idea of really trying to do no harm and not um, a lot for a lot of these people. You know, even in the context of something like a royal commission dredging up this stuff is is really recovering or, or, or returning to some of the worst moments of their lives and mm. so I really didn't want to given the abundance of information that was out there I really didn't want to um cause any further distress I think I in terms of you know not not borrowing from people's experiences there are kind of there are these details right that that you pick out and I think it's it's tricky to talk about because it's almost like a kind of telepathy. There are things that I would note or hear when I was reading these reports or speaking with people and they would, I don't know, as a writer, that it's these kind of little details or notes that sort of speak to you in some way and you write them down or take photographs of them and, and kind of salt them away and you don't always know why they're useful. And then at some point, in the writing process, this kind of, I don't know, metaphysical thing happens and you realise why they are useful. And then it's about changing that detail in some way so that it's totally de-identified, but still fulfils the purpose that, that you kind of feel like it should from a narrative perspective, which, you know, that all makes it sound really technical, but it's not, for me at least, it's not that conscious a process when you're doing it. I think I don't know, that the ethical dimension of telling a story like this, particularly as someone who has not had this experience, was something I, you know, grappled with a lot and and have continued to post-publication. Mm. Um, and it feels, you know, very, very, very important to me. Really that idea of working with respect for other people and their experiences first and foremost is the most important thing. You know, it, it has to supersede any kind of aesthetic merit or intellectual merit, Did you speak to care leavers about how you were wrestling with this sort of ethical bounds of what you were doing? Um, I did in in kind of broad or abstract terms. I'll be honest and say very few people, and maybe this is a, a function of these people having kind of come to me or approached me with the desire to talk, but very few people I've spoken to were unhappy. In fact, I don't think I've spoken to Nobody I spoke to in the course of my research was who was a care leaver or care survivor or sort of took umbrage or was disappointed by my desire to write about this stuff, I Mm. think, which, again, doesn't mean that I've done it correctly or that it's the right thing to do. But overwhelmingly the the response from people who either have grown up in the system or have have worked within the system in some way, whether as carers themselves or, I don't know, social workers, you know, obviously the, the best possible thing is if we had people telling their own stories right that would be the like the ultimate outcome but those don't exist I mean there are very few examples sorry I shouldn't say they don't exist I I can think of a couple of great examples they're so few and far between that I think it then for me at least becomes a question of like is it better to (laughs) contribute something even if it's imperfect and and I'm I'm writing about something that's outside the bounds of my experience or is it I don't know Better do we just stay silent about it and Mm. There's also the question of, like, I mean, the last thing I would ever want to do is exploit somebody else's uh, trauma for any purpose, whether it's monetary or, or aesthetic or whatever else. But I think there's also a question of, like, if we're just hungry for trauma narratives, that doesn't benefit survivors either, you know? Like, if we're just asking people to get up and, and you know, tell a story about the worst periods of their life, I don't think that's ethical either. It's really complex. Mm, um,
1: yeah.
2: It's very, very tricky and it's something that I, I still think about all Yeah, the time. I'm
1: sure. I mean, did you, was there ever a point in the writing process or even, you know, while the manuscript was being edited where you reached a point of peace with, you know, I've, I've come to terms with the ethical fraughtness of this and
2: oh, I, no. I'm in a place where no, still, so still no. No, and it, I mean, especially like post- um, like winning the Miles Franklin, right? Mm. That comes with a congratulations. F- by the way. Oh, thank you, sorry. <laughs> well, I wasn't waiting, it. Um, but like that comes with a financial prize as sure. well. well. And yeah, so, I wanted to then, ask you how, yeah. did you, how did you feel about that aspect of it? I mean, obviously, it's. I it, it was thrilled to to win the of course, prize, of course. But yeah, there is definitely like as soon as I found that out, I was like, well, I have now profited in a sense, and I mean, I I already. Received in advance for the book. It wasn't like the first time I'd made money from sure. it, but it was this, you know, incredible. And it's not just the financial aspect; it's also the, the recognition, right? Like I'm, I'm receiving clout in a sense for telling this story. And I guess my my way of trying to reconcile these things a little bit was um, I was able to to make a donation or a couple of donations, um, one to the Pajama Foundation and one to um, Vaca victorian aboriginal child care agency and i don't mean that in the sense of like you know kind of it's all fine now <laughs> brushing my hands sure. off and being like well that's that but that was uh, for me um you know like i i've never had enough money to kind of make a sizable donation to any of these organizations and i know every little bit helps i get that but it felt like the first time in my life where i had a chunk of cash sitting in the bank that i could actually do Draw something on. meaningful with yeah. um and so yeah sorry i haven't ever spoken about that Um, in a podcast because it feels, it's, it's, I can't talk about it without feeling like I'm big noting myself, but for me, and again, I'm not here to say if that was the right response, but to answer your question, there has not been a point where I've stopped thinking about it or worrying about it. But um, I made a choice in deciding to write this story and to publish it. And, and I made a choice to say, I think that having a story out there, you know, to shed a little bit more light on this narrative is on balance less harmful? I I think so. Um, (laughs) I hope so. I really hope
1: so. You know, when reading this book, I was reminded of An American Marriage by Mm -hmm. Tiara Jones. Have you read that? Yes. Um, Great book, um, a novel about the incarceration of African-American men, partly. Mm -hmm. Um, And I know that she based one of her drafts entirely on the research that she'd done for this and then rewrote it when she realized that a novel is about people and their problems, not about Problems
2: and their people. Mm
1: -hmm. Is this something that you encountered in writing this book?
2: Yeah, I haven't heard that quote, but it's it's great. Um, I sit with research for a really long time before I write anything, and so I I kind of sat doing all of this reading and research, and you know, and I walk around and I ride my bicycle and I'm thinking. And during that time, that's also where the character stuff is formed because I'm not thinking in like sentences that come out of a commission or a report. Like my way of sort of metabolizing that is by applying it to characters. And everything I've ever written is, is a character study. Like I'm, I'm really just fundamentally interested in how people withstand or move about in different situations. And so for me it felt less conscious than that. What I got from that quote is that she was writing a story about
1: people rather than trying to make a point, yes. you know, drive home a point about how awful, you know, institutional um, incarceration is with bodies of light, do you ever have to wrestle with that before writing? Like, you know, I have to put aside all the things that I think are wrong with the system in order to
2: write a story that's convincing and compelling about people in the system. Not really, because it felt kind of self evident to me, yeah. right? I was like, if I portray this in a way that feels faithful to reality, mm. then the point is kind of self evident. I don't think anybody would read that novel and go, wow, we've like, wacko, we've done a great job <laughs> raising children, right? You know, what I do think is that people who don't have any experience with the welfare system, or you know with with at risk young people are often surprised by the the volume of abuse mm. and what i will say is i don't think Maggie's story is exceptional unfortunately mm. i don't think it's an astonishing you know i don't think what she endures is the the worst that you know yeah i think i think I'm, i don't want to say it's a typical experience but i don't think i think we would be um very naive to think that that's, you know, a particularly unusual yeah. case study. Yeah. And so there are things in the book that do ask the reader to suspend disbelief. Sure. But her experiences in out-of-home care, I don't think um, that that's not one of those instances. Mm.
1: You've said that you wanted to write Bodies of Light because you don't see residential care covered in mainstream media. What particularly do you think is missing or lacking in the media's
2: representation of these issues? Um, I think honestly, there's just there's so little coverage in mainstream media, period. Like there's no um we, we kind of tend to talk about these these things when a new report is tabled or um you know, I've brought up in a few interviews that that Four Corners report on Dondale detention center that aired in maybe twenty seventeen. And that stuff will sort of spur a little this little burbling, I don't know, stream of activity in the media for a couple of days. And then we all just kind of forget about it. And if mm. there's no continued conversation, why would there be a push for funding? You know what I mean? Like I, I kind of get how it is overlooked because I think in part it's such a difficult subject. I mean, no one wants to read about, you know, awful things happening to people who, you know, live in aged care facilities or people with intellectual disabilities who who live in residential care. Mm. Um, they experience many of this, you know, many of these things, unfortunately, but we don't like to read about it as a society and i suspect that you know there's a relationship with not wanting to report on it as well and part of me gets it right because it's like looking at the sun or something like it's it's really white hot and and painful and it's not pleasant to to know that these things are happening mm. but i also think that turning a blind eye to it is not the solution and and i i, I don't know what the answer is but i I think just more reporting in general would, mm. would be a good place to start.
1: I can't speak for the whole industry and of all course. of my colleagues, of course, or across the spectrum, but I think, you know, there's lots of reasons for lack of coverage. And I think part of it is the difficulty in getting these kinds of stories. You know, you're speaking to through various layers of institutions yes. to reach people who are very vulnerable and often don't want to talk about their stories until many many years yes. later if at all and then obviously and then often through an advocacy group right so it's quite yes. difficult to get those stories of of systemic problems um, without those voices but i think also um
2: yeah i mean we could talk that could be a whole other podcast about all of the problems oh, in and the is, media it's inherently difficult right because a lot of these institutions also are either, um, you know, they receive a lot of government funding or they might be affiliated with a particular church or organisation. And I I get, like, it's difficult. It's difficult to contact people there. It's difficult because of confidentiality reasons. It's particularly difficult when you're talking about minors. Yeah. All of that stuff is, like, as you say, there are layers of complexity there. Mm. I think I do agree
1: with you that there isn't enough coverage of news stories of systemic problems in the residential care system. But I also don't think that people would have been ready for a book like this without, you know, taking someone deep inside this experience of abuse without the media coverage of those issues through things like the Royal Commission. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's fair. I think that it takes society quite a long time to reckon with denial mm-hmm. and, the, and you know, the worst that humanity can do.
2: Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I think it's especially true where there are, you know, like the Royal Commission, um, for instance, uh Dealt quite a lot with clergy and and kind of religious structures, mm. and you know it's one thing for us to look at judicial systems and and kind of critique those. Look, I, I'm going to be honest; I'm not a religious or spiritual person, so I I can't really imagine this. But but I, I, it must be really distressing to know that these institutions. You know, if you are, f- for instance, Catholic, it must be really, really bloody awful and terrifying. To try to come to terms with the fact that people who are in positions of power within your church, mm. you know, who have brought you great comfort, and that must be really awful to to, to reckon with. Mm. Um, and so, I, I totally agree. I think change sort of necessarily happens slowly, um, mm. but I guess I, I, I reserve the right to to be to wish that it would um, change a bit faster. And, yeah, and <laughs> I, you know, I kind of I. Um, I think what, what annoys me is when people say, oh, it's too hard to read. I hate reading about, you know, yeah. abused children. I'm like, yeah, I don't like writing. You know, it's, yeah. it's, it's a strange thing because it's like no one likes reading about it, but that's yeah. not why you – I mean, there is certainly reading for pleasure, but a lot of the time when I'm reading, I'm not reading to kind of feel good. I'm reading to learn or to, to escape or or, you know, to – to find out about a different world. Exactly, yours. exactly. Yeah. So I guess maybe that's just, a I don't know, a, a different sort of personality thing. But, mm. um, yeah, I, I do think that maybe you're right that this this exposure kind of needs to be bite-sized. Otherwise, it's it sort of feels insurmountable as, yeah. as a task. I feel like news media sort of allows
1: people to experience these or, you know, get an understanding of these issues at a bit of a safe distance because yes. it's kind of sanitized. And literature, on the other hand, really takes you right in <laughs> and doesn't really let you go. Do you think that those two aspects, those
2: two types of media kind of work together in that way? Yeah, it's interesting. I I've thought about this before in the context of things like, sorry, I'm going to sound like a first year media student here, but like the <laughs> 24 hour news cycle, sure. which really does enable us to kind of See the worst thing we've ever seen, and then the next day you just see the worst thing you've ever seen. You know, it's this very like, am I going to see um, children and dying in war zones, and then and then we we just kind of subsume that, and then the next story is something equally horrific, mm. and we kind of I think compartmentalize quite a lot when we watch the news regularly or, or consume media regularly. Mm. Um, and I think you're totally right in that the the structure and. Uh, length of a novel asks the reader to to sit with those things for quite a lot longer, perhaps.
1: I want to bring the conversation back to Maggie. You know, this book is not just about Maggie's own experience, which is often quite lonely. And she also, she finds it really hard to be known as we've discussed, but I also think it provides some insight into the way other people fail to see who she really is either because they don't know about her background or because they don't know how to deal with people who've had trauma the way she has. I just wondered if you have a view on how we in society should try to understand people better when we
2: know that they've had these kinds of traumatic experiences like Maggie. I feel out of my depth in the sense that I'm not, you know, a clinician or a psychologist. Um, you know, I think if if somebody's dealing with, like, complex PTSD that's it you know, something like that is a really complex diagnosis and and I don't think it's up to us kind of individually to solve these problems. Like we we need to be as supportive of one another as we can. But there also needs to be a solid framework in place for things like, you know, mental health care and early intervention programs and things like that. And I think, you know, at a one-on-one level, there are we can, we can make these gestures of compassion and understanding and, um, and try to behave with as much tenderness and, and kind of uh, generosity as we can. I think we should all do that anyway. But I think at a, a broader or more systemic level, there's certainly more room for for greater support I've got to insert a
1: huge spoiler alert at mm-hmm. this point I, I would <laughs> hope that most people listening have already read the book but some may not have yet so stop listening now if you haven't yet and you want to enjoy the ending um, Maggie's guilt or innocence is left fairly ambiguous at the end of this book
2: why why is that I think because I wanted to trust that the reader could draw their own conclusions I mean from my perspective her innocence was always undeniable, but I also wanted to... I mean, she's a little bit of an unreliable narrator and I was really fascinated in in reading about, you know, the way that society responds to new mothers and not just mothers who are experiencing, you know, Postpartum psychosis, or those kinds of more visible and 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 I don't know, I say extreme in in quotation marks, but just the the kind of lack of knowledge um, around things like birth trauma and, and things that are really commonly experienced. And you you don't have to have had an awful upbringing, or you know you can experience those things um, becoming a parent regardless of your your kind of background. And I became really interested in the way that. um particularly the judicial system actually, sees mothers and new mothers and responds to them and, you know, what happens when they are seen to fail to nurture or look after or keep safe their babies or children um, and the way in which we respond to that as a society or as a as a kind of legal system as distinct from somebody who goes out and punches somebody in front of a nightclub, for instance, and then on top of that, those layers of how does society respond to you when you are impoverished or you don't have much formal education or you have an experience with, you know, cops that makes you particularly anxious and particularly stressed and kind of vulnerable to suggestibility or things like that. There, there are um, there are these kind of layers of. Intersecting vulnerabilities, I think that I wanted to look at, mm. and also the you know challenges that people have, all these institutions
1: have of of viewing what someone with trauma looks like, or what someone in residential yes. care
2: looks like, as well, and what yeah what what it means to kind of be um, the the ideal plaintiff or the ideal victim yeah. or yeah you, know. you know you mentioned
1: earlier that you know there's no real redemption here for Maggie. Uh, what can you tell us about the ending that you chose for her i mean some might see it as quite hopeful you know in in light of everything that she's had to deal with throughout her life whereas others would see it as very
2: sad um how would you describe it i think it feels hopeful to me like you know as as always i wanted it to to feel realistic and plausible within the the bounds of the work that i created but i um some people will read those last few pages and feel that it's quite a lonely existence. But from the beginning, I, you know, there's, um, and maybe this is a spoiler as well, but the reason that that Maggie is kind of retelling this story is that she's contacted by um, a person with whom she was in a foster home when they were teenagers. And that was kind of the through line for me was that at the end of this book or the end of this story, there is somebody out there who knows her and who knows where she is yeah. and has been looking for her. And it's not, you know, a kind of conventional relationship perhaps, but um, she has this one person who's known her for all of these years or, or has known of her. And to me that's that's very hopeful. And And additionally that idea that for somebody who has endured such instability and has lived... In, in you know more places than I've had hot breakfasts and has lived out of cars and in motels and has kind of been bounced from place to place and from emergency accommodation to hospitals to share houses. I think, um, you know, her, her life is quite small and I, I don't mean that as a negative thing. She has this routine that she's been able to establish where, you know, she goes to her job and she, she walks her dog and she has a couple of close friends and her days are quite narrow and I think for a lot of us, that w- that would seem sort of stifling or tedious or boring. But I just kept thinking how much she must sort of crave somebody must somebody like that must sort of crave that routine and the predictability. Um, if you've not had that for you know the first forty or fifty years of your life, mm. she's a character in a book. But I suppose channeling her,
1: you're able to um, navigate all these tricky subjects mm. in a uh, specific way. So I I guess I wonder what Maggie taught you looking back
2: now about all of that we've been talking about. I think in writing her I I came to consider these sort of moral questions in much less absolute terms. You know I said earlier that Maggie makes decisions, she often makes bad decisions and you know, more often than not, they're informed. I can see, you know, I could see why she was making them. I mean, I, I wrote it, right, but, like, I I, <laughs> I I could justify in my head why she would do X, Y, Z, even though personally... You wouldn't do the same I, thing. I think it's a bad decision. But it, it those often felt like the only decisions that, that she would make, you know, a kind of, I don't know, inexorable choice. And I think I became a lot less invested in, you know, what the right or wrong thing might be. And what is a good or bad choice? Even though those are words that I've just used talking about it, and tried to um, tried to just think about it in terms of you know like those those puzzles where you just have to like um, I don't know I feel like when I was a kid there used to be these puzzles where you had to like draw a star without any of the lines crossing, or you know to cross to cross a, a pond without going back on any of the lily pads or whatever it is, and. In that sense, it often, I don't know, writing that character was kind of a, a puzzle, but I think I learned to, to think maybe in less absolute moral terms and um, hopefully to, to, to look at people and their actions with a little bit more compassion or, you know, less judgment. Well, thank you
1: so much for coming in and taking the time and being so generous with your time as well. This was a really interesting conversation. Thank you for having me. If this episode has brought up any concerns for you, you can call the Blue Knot Foundation on 1300 657 380. They offer support for anyone who's been affected by complex trauma. Jennifer Down was my guest today. She's the author of Bodies of Light, published by Text Publishing. This episode was produced by Molly Glassie, Alison Chan and myself. Mixing by Daniel Simo. I'm Jane Lee. I'm the series producer of Book It In and Molly Glassy is our executive producer. Next week on Book It In, Paul Daly will be here speaking with historian and writer Rachel Franks about her biography of Robert Nosy Bob Howard. He was the last hangman in the New South Wales colony, and he also didn't have a nose. Thanks for listening to Book It In. Please remember to subscribe and follow us on your favourite podcast app, and tell your friends about us. It really helps us to find more listeners. Catch you next time.